This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Strategic foresight is not futuristic forecasting. Foresight is about being able to perceive the significance and nature of events before they occur. It is about having the imagination to be prepared for what may come, regardless of which scenario occurs. It's a mindset, not a process. It is about going beyond the tyranny of the present and preparing the best you can for the uncertainty of the future. Efforts to create strategic foresight capacity in the U.S. federal government has experienced fits and starts over the past 40 years. But in recent years, there's been some progress at the agency level, largely at the behest of political and career leaders who appreciate the value of foresight as part of their decision-making processes. How does the U.S. Coast Guard use strategic foresight to inform decision-making? And what is the U.S. Coast Guard's evergreen process? How is the federal community sharing strategic foresight best practices? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Commander Eric Popeil, Program Manager of the U.S. Coast Guard's Evergreen Program. Also joining my conversation is John Kaminsky, Senior Fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Eric, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to talk about uh, my program. Great. John, welcome as always. Thank you. So, Eric, what's the history and mission of the U.S. Coast Guard's Office of Emerging Policy and and the strategic analysis team? How does it support the Coast Guard's multiple missions? So the Office of Emerging Policy is uh, kind of like a big uh, think tank. We've been around for for quite some time, and we're sort of the author and the uh, perfecter of the uh, Coast Guard strategies. So we work uh, directly with the commandant and uh, and directly for him and pretty much all of the different strategies that come out of the uh, Coast Guard come out of our office. So anytime there's something new or uh, that the commandant wants to take a look at when it comes to emerging policy or when it comes to something that's not so near term, um, he'll usually prompt the uh, our office to sort of take a look at it and uh, and then and we'll go from there. We also work under obviously the deputy commandant for operations, um, Admiral Ray, and uh, we're at his beck and call as well uh, at his purview. Okay, what's an example of what of the longer term? So some of the longer term projects that the co- that the office has worked on um, has been the uh, si- the cyber strategy, the uh, Coast Guard's Arctic strategy, the Coast Guard's Western Hemisphere strategy, and we're currently in the process of uh, looking at uh, maritime transportation system. Um, and we're also in the middle of a project that um, is looking at uh, uh, long-term uh, capability gaps in the Arctic. And what's your role in this? So my role is to run the Evergreen Program, uh, which is our strategic foresight initiative. 
what uh, what I like to do is we like to think over the horizon. We try and uh, decouple ourselves from the budget cycle and look more long term and uh, sort of operate in the in the realm of, uh, of plausible future operating scenarios um, and try and sort of identify some uh, some key. Um, issues or trends or challenges or opportunities that the Coast Guard needs to start getting ready for now to be ready for an uncertain future. And with that kind of a portfolio, what are, say, your top challenges and how have you sought to address those challenges? So I've got a few uh, few challenges. Uh, I think the first one is uh, getting the, the concept or the idea of foresight out there. Um, I don't think everybody gets it. I mean, that's not a, a slam on anybody. That's just one of those things where uh, it takes a little different uh, mental uh, process to sort of think in an in a alternative reality. So I think one of the biggest challenges is sort of explaining what we do and why it's helpful to an organization. Um, I think that senior leadership buying has been helpful in that when we're able to get our senior leaders to look at our products and to, um, to buy off on them. And I think that's, that's hugely helpful. So, for example, our last uh, two uh, reports from Evergreen on cyber and then our last large uh, Evergreen uh, report were both signed by the vice commandant promulgated. So it helps to, for have, to have him sort of put the word out and say, listen, he's not being prescriptive and he's not saying you know, to various um, programs that they have to do certain things. He's just telling them to take a look at what we've produced and sort of uh, weave it into their strategic planning. Um, so that's a huge challenge. I think another challenge is time management. Um, there's We're an army of two over there helping us out, and we have some great contract support. We've worked with some phenomenal uh, contractors in the past, and we're currently working with RAND. But there's a lot to do. There is a lot of uh, uh, folks out there that want to hear what, what we're doing. There's a lot of work to do when it comes to looking at environmental scans and keeping up with current events and that sort of stuff. So um, a, a challenge is, is time management. I think I go to work every day, and, uh, and I don't know where the day goes. So I'm constantly working. In your tenure, and you've been there for, what, about four or five years? Uh, I've been uh, the Evergreen Program Manager for about three years. I've been at headquarters now um, in various offices. We're now in uh, the Office of Emerging Policy uh, for about four years, and I've got, uh, I've got one year to go. And what's been sort of the biggest surprise that you've had in that town? So I think the, the biggest surprise this whole thing is, uh, is how much I like my job. Uh, <laughs> so the, uh, uh, I'm an aviator by trade, and uh, we are told uh, constantly out in the field that, you know, flying is the best thing, and it is. I really enjoyed flying, and uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, but we're trying to stay away from headquarters. And I think that uh, when I was assigned here, I was a little apprehensive, but uh, I was ready to, ready to show up, and I, I showed up here, and quite frankly— uh, virtually none of what I was told about headquarters was true. Now, there is a lot of bureaucracy and there's a lot of stuff <laughs> that you have to work in. But in terms of uh, w- want to come to work and waking up and, uh, and enjoying what I do, I think that surprised me a lot. And it's surprised me so much that we're sticking around. So I've had the pleasure of interviewing the last three and current commandants. And uh, so this question goes right to the heart of leadership. What are the characteristics of an effective leader? And perhaps you could illustrate for us some core leadership lessons you bring to work every day. Sure. So I I think that uh, the the first and foremost is you got to be a people person. Um, I think you have to take care of your folks and you have to ensure that you're looking out for them no matter what. I've got a couple inspirations uh, from that. My previous XO at my unit, Don Taylor, I jumped into an administrative job. I didn't have a whole lot of experience doing it. And uh, he basically, um, you know, always supported me and, and let, let me fail and then helped me to learn from those failures. And I became a better person and a better officer for that. I think uh, Vice Admiral uh, Courier, who's now retired, he was my CO at Air Station uh, Miami. 
and you know he he was one of those guys that would stand up in front of all of us junior officers as we're we're learning our craft and say you know I've got your back if you're following the rules you're following the regs and you're not and you're you're prosecuting the mission if something happens and you're doing the right thing I've got your back and I always thought that was critical for our development when we went into the we went on a mission or we were in the cockpit and we didn't um, you know we knew that our, our commanding officer at our back and then um, I got a good friend of mine. Um, his name is Frank Flood, and he's a people person. He's always encouraging. He's always, uh, you know, helping folks out. Um, I, I think you have to go the extra mile for people, and I think that by doing that and, and giving them the opportunity to not only succeed but fail, helping them learn is um, is critical to that. Um, and I think it, it goes down to a deeper issue is that I think a lot of people get into the Coast Guard um, or any service, and they immerse themselves in their work to the point where they forget about other people. They forget about their family. Um, you know, your your legacy as a leader is going to be the people that you influence. Um, you may have a, a stellar career, but if you don't take care of your folks, uh, when when it comes time to retire, the Coast Guard will usher you off and say, hey, thank you for your service, but they're not going to invite you for Christmas dinner. What is strategic foresight? We will ask Commander Eric Popeil, Program Manager of the U.S. Coast Guard's Evergreen Program, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. What is the U.S. Air Force's information dominance strategy? How is the Air Force changing the way it does IT? What is the U.S. Air Force doing to leverage advances of mobile technologies? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Bill Marion, Deputy Chief Information Dominance and Deputy Chief Information Officer, U.S. Air Force. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Commander Eric Popeil, Program Manager of the U.S. Coast Guard's Evergreen Program. Also joining my conversation from the IBM Center for the Business of Government is John Kaminsky. So, Eric, would you tell us more about the Evergreen Program's mission and vision? How does it position the Coast Guard to navigate emerging strategic trends and challenges and harness opportunities? Sure. Uh, so what we're trying to do is um, we're trying to build a strategic agile Coast Guard able to manage a complex and fast-changing environment. Uh, that's sort of the, the mission that, that I've come up with. And what we want to do that is instill strategic intent throughout our service. We want people to learn methodologies and learn strategic thinking so that they're able to identify this stuff and apply it, not just in their um, program, but actually across the Coast Guard. Um, so, for example, you know, we have to we have to use this stuff, and it has to be useful in, in terms of informing key decision makers and uh, and senior leaders. I'm able to teach mid grade officers. I'm able to talk to senior enlisted folks, and the goal is to really inculcate this into the service, and so that we're not chained to the budget environment. We're not thinking just 
a year ahead or one continuing resolution ahead that we're thinking really long term and we know where the Coast Guard wants to, wants to, uh, to be. I think that by doing this and sort of a scenario-based planning uh, methodology, we're able to identify some opportunities, um, but also identify some challenges. And if you're, if you're consistently just looking at an annual planning cycle, what's going to wind up happening is that you're going to be caught unawares of some of this, uh, some of the stuff that's coming down the pike when you should have seen it coming. We're trying to avoid the failure of imagination with this methodology. Right? Are there some guiding principles for the Evergreen program? Yes, there are. The, the four that I like to, uh, to talk about are courage, integrity, creativity, and stewardship. I think that we have to be courageous. Uh, sometimes when you identify some trends that are coming down the, the, the pike, you're not always going to um, be the best friend of maybe senior leadership. A lot of people have different agendas, but I think that it's our responsibility to just speak the truth and speak, state the facts even when they're, when they're unpopular. And I think that that speaks to integrity as well too, right? Where I'm not going to tell someone just what they want to hear. Um, I'm going to tell them what we came up with and what the group of, of people or experts came up with. Um, it maybe it is not what they want to hear, but I've got to tell them that. Um, in terms of creativity, I think when you're designing alternative worlds, you're designing future scenarios, um, it's not just about sort of being rote and, you know, pulling stuff out and making something. You've got to be creative about these worlds that you're designing. When you want to immerse people in them, they have to be plausible. They've got to be something that people will, will want to, to look at and not just a bunch of facts. So we, we go about and we, we try and write some short stories. We try and get people to want to really immerse themselves in a scenario and hit the I believe button. Um, and finally, stewardship, I think, is critical to anything. The American taxpayers are the ones that are, that are paying my salary and they're, and they're paying a lot of people's salary in the Coast Guard. And I think that we have to be making the, the Coast Guard a better place. We cannot just be a think tank that spends a lot of money and comes up with big, grandiose ideas. We have to um, be making the Coast Guard a better place and we have to have some actionable results. So my big motto is no more shelfware. I don't want to produce a report that some people are going to read and some people are going to stick on the shelf and maybe blow dust off of it. I really want to start linking this stuff to, to things that are making the Coast Guard a better place. And, and there's got to be a return on investment because that's what the, the taxpayers demand and ultimately we serve them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we, we haven't defined it per, per se, but strategic foresight. Are, are you predicting the future or preparing for it and why is there an important distinction between this? <laughs> so I, I don't think that uh, we predict the future. Mm-hmm. I think that you can identify what the future may look like through a rigorous um, process of looking at uh, key trends and drivers that are shaping the global environment and the Coast Guard operating environment. Um, so you can get pretty close, but we're definitely not trying to predict the future. I think if you assign the word prediction to something, ultimately people are going to gravitate towards that. And what's going to happen is they're going to be, well, this person says this is going to happen. So that's what we're going to prepare for. Um, And I would argue that's probably not what's going to happen. (laughs) So I like to say that Evergreen doesn't predict the future. We like to prepare for it. And we like to um, look at, again, a range of plausible operating environments and sort of figure out what's the cross-cutting strategic need that functions across all of those different scenarios. In a sense, you're hedging your bet, but you're basing it on um, subject matter experts. You're basing it on rigor, and you're not just a couple guys sitting around in a smoke-filled room sort of inventing this stuff and saying, well, we're like the weathermen. We can be wrong if possible. I don't think we can be as wrong as the weathermen. I think we really have to um, uh, look at what we're doing and really try and um, 
and identify some critical um, uh, success factors that will prepare the Coast Guard for the future. But again, I, I don't think we work in the – I'm not in the prediction business. I think if I, if I was, I'd be making a lot more money somewhere else. <laughs> you just mentioned uh, success factors. Then you have strategic needs and you have key success factors. And the Evergreen process defines those and sort of like – can you elaborate on this a little bit? Yeah. So I think it's a little bit of semantics here. I think the verbiage just has changed over time. We used to call them uh, core strategies and we called them strategic needs key success facts. I think they're all somewhat similar. Um, but what they are is essentially a course of action or things that the Coast Guard should be looking at and identifying so that, that we can look at them and, and be successful um, in the future. So, for example, I'll take the, the concept of maritime domain awareness. It's, it's sort of a big concept that nobody really – people know what it means, but it, there's a lot of different ways to define it. And maritime domain awareness for the Coast Guard may be different than maritime domain awareness for you know, the Chinese Navy or something. So I think that what we're able to do is sort of put forth these big ideas and then turn that over to the, the subject matter experts and say, OK, now how do we go about accomplishing these? Um, what is going to make the Coast Guard successful? What is going to be a key strategic need that's going to help the Coast Guard to, to not just survive but thrive in a future operating environment? So our goal at Evergreen and in DCUX is not necessarily to give you the solution. It's to start the process of thinking and then say, okay, now let's fill in the blanks here. What does maritime domain awareness or, or some other strategic need look like to you? And go talk to the guys in the boat community. Go talk to the guys in the aviation community and ask them, and they'll have a better idea of what it, the concept actually means. But identifying that, I think, is our job, um, and I think we, we do a fairly good job of it if you look at our track record. And drilling deeper into the evergreen process, what's the difference between annual planning and scenario-based planning? And perhaps you could tell us more about the actual scenario planning process and associated sure. methods. So I think annual planning is one of the things that uh, it's a process that I think a lot of uh, uh, government agencies uh, engage in. I think it's and largely because I think it's tied to the budget cycle. And it doesn't help that we have nothing but continued resolutions for the last, <laughs> I don't know how many years now, at least since I've been in D.C. So I think the annual pr- pr- uh, the planning process is one of those things that you, you look at it. Um, and you go, what do I have and where do I sort of want to achieve and how do I sort of survive in the environment that I'm in right now? It's sort of the tyranny of the present. I think scenario-based planning uh, forces you to um, divorce yourself from that. It allows you to get into a, a plausible operating environment that may look radically different from what you're, you're experiencing now. But as a set, however many you choose to have, five or four or ten or whatever it happens to be, you can sort of bound a future. And so as you're looking at scenarios, number one, you have to invent a different scenario than the present, which means it forces you to actually go into the future. Um, and whether or not you decide to go four or five years or 20 or 30 years is entirely up to you. But the bottom line is getting away from that sort of budget cycle. Um, and then sort of identifying, once you once you build those scenarios and once you base those on some a good rigorous um, uh, platform of research, environmental scanning and that sort of stuff, I think that getting people immersed in those and having them hit the I believe button and saying, listen, I'm going to go live in this world. I'm going to take my organization. I'm going to put it in there. So what does the Coast Guard look like in scenario A or scenario B? Um, and, and how do I succeed in that? Distilling those uh, strategic needs or key success facts that we talked about before and then applying those across the range of scenarios that you're using and looking at the ones that are common across each scenario. 
And if you take the ones, eventually some will rise to the top. And the ones that do that will make the Coast Guard or your organization successful across a, a, a range of different scenarios are the, ultimately the ones that you're going to want to at least put some time and effort into studying. Again, we're not prescriptive, so it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to take this as gospel truth and say this is what it needs to be because obviously things can change. But communicating those to decision makers and saying we think that this is a good idea for you to look at. Now, I think the, the critical part about scenario planning is because you're dealing with an unknowable future and an uncertain future and future is plural when you're dealing with scenarios is that you've got to um, track these things. So if you if you go down a, a road that says, listen, we, we think that this is a good idea and we're going to study it and we're going to throw resources at it, if things tend to change later on, you have to have the intestinal fortitude to either pull back the program, uh, shift a little bit, um, and uh, and identify where, where you need to apply those resources. I think if you looked at an evergreen program pre-9-11 and an evergreen program post-9-11, my guess is and it, it's true, the strategic needs are different, uh, significantly different. Um, those things happen, and we have to be able to prepare for them. Now, I'm not saying we have to plan for black swan events or 9-11-style events, but you have to look at those and say, well, this radically changed our world. Let's reevaluate what we're doing. Now, some may work. Some may just have to be adjusted. Some may be like, you know what, this isn't working anymore, and you have to be able to go it out uh, to, to toss it out. Um, I know that's anathema in Washington. I mean, it seems like when a program gets started, it gets funded, and that's the end of it. It never dies. But I think that part of this is is continually tracking with it and being uh, responsible with our resources and saying this doesn't work, not because we, the, the methodology was bad, but because the future, which is inherently unknowable, changed, and now we have to adjust our, our, our trajectory. Now, when you do scenario-based planning, uh, there's different approaches, and – Recently, there's been this uh, trend around human-centered design. Have you incorporated that those concepts into scenario-based planning? We have. What I really like about human-centered design uh, methodology or design thinking methodology is that it's, it's pretty inclusive for everybody. And it's pretty low-tech. So we use a lot of sticky notes and a lot of, uh, a lot of Sharpie markers and that kind of stuff. But what I really – like I said before, what I really like about it is that, is that it's, it's inclusive. When we, when we have workshops or we have uh, thinking se- uh, se- ideation seminar or sessions, sometimes you don't know what you're going to get. You're going to get some introverts and some extroverts, different types of people. The program values all of those ideas. You wouldn't, we wouldn't be asking you to participate in this workshop or this, in, in this uh, project if we didn't value your ideas. I've been in government a long time, and sometimes in a meeting or in a group, there are people that can just dominate the discussion. And that is, is okay, but sometimes you get a lot of groupthink, and then people don't want to speak up. A um, real good example of this uh, was I was facilitating a, a design thinking session with a lot of aviation CEOs. I had a couple that were obviously type A personalities, and they were dominating the discussion. And I was debating whether I should step in and say, all right, you two, you know, calm down a little bit. Let's hear what they have to say. Uh, what I found out after I sort of just took a step back and looked was that there was uh, a couple other folks that were obviously introverted, and they were writing down little notes on sticky notes and handing them to me, and I was posting them up on the board. And so I just said, you know what? I'm getting their ideas out. And what ended up happening was, sure, we had a ton of ideas from the type A folks, and they were writing them down and throwing them up, but I, I probably managed to throw up 20 or 30 different ideas from people that never said a word in probably the 45 minutes that I was facilitating. When it came time to downselect, a lot of their ideas were chosen, and they were ne- they had never been voiced. So the the idea behind design thinking is um, that I like is that everybody gets a voice, and especially when you're dealing in in futures where opinions could radically differ, 
letting everybody say, hey, listen, if you want to write something down, please do have at it uh, and let's post it and stuff like that. So we, we've integrated uh, human-centered design, design thinking into our workshops. Um, we think it's worked out really well, and it's, it's, been, it's been great for sort of eliciting those ideas out of people in our workshops. So, Eric, um, how does the Evergreen process assist leadership uh, to think over the horizon, the tyranny of the present, if you will, and manage uncertainty and ambiguity in plausible operational environments? I think what it does is, as I mentioned before, it, it sort of forces them to sort of uh, leave the, the present mm-hmm. and move into, into futures that they may not be comfortable with. It allows them to kind of look at a different environment and think about things that are different. So uh, I think that if you constantly focus on the present and what's coming up now, you're going to use the, some, some of the old maybe tried and true things that have worked in the past and we're just going to, you know, project them in the future and that, well, they worked in the past, so they'll work in the, in, the, in the future. Past performance doesn't indicate future results, right? So I think what, what using sort of this over the horizon and forcing them to go into future scenarios um, sort of takes them out of this and says, listen, let's imagine a world that's different than what you're in now and let's figure out how the Coast Guard does succeed. And to me, it at least temper some of that ambiguity. They can at least look at it and go, well, you know, maybe things aren't as uncertain as we think. Maybe if we look at the trends and the drivers that have built these scenarios and look at what's coming down, it's maybe maybe we can look uh, further into the future and see that, that the future isn't so uncertain. Um, and it also allows us for it to be less ambiguous. In other words, the future is this this boogeyman out there. It's not. Um, we, can, we can sort of look into it and make some educated guess about what it's going to hold. How does this relate to risk management? So I think um, foresight is a part of risk management. Um, clearly, it is not all risk management. Uh, we don't deal with internal controls. We don't deal with some of this other stuff. But um, I think it is a, it's a way um, for leadership or for an organization to sort of sit there and go, what does the future hold for us? Um, what are some of these blind spots that maybe we can identify early so that we don't get, get, uh, get hit by this or by something that we're not, we're not prepared for? I think an example of, of someone that is not you know, exercising foresight or even any sort of risk management was Blockbuster. Um, nobody goes to Blockbuster anymore. I think there's one store open in Alaska somewhere, um, and that's it. But I would, I would argue that if they had engaged in a sort of a rigorous foresight pro, um, process – they looked at some plausible scenarios as Redbox and Netflix and the internet were sort of coming online. My guess is that they would have identified some of these trends, and it might not have been the streaming video or any of this sort of stuff, but they would have identified things and sort of managed the risk that ultimately was their, was their demise. I'm not an expert in Blockbuster, but I do know they just didn't adapt. But I'm fairly certain that if you grabbed if they had a workshop, someone would have said, you know, I don't like or people don't like showing up to a store, not finding the movie that they want, renting something they don't want because they're there already and they don't want to just drive home with nothing, and then paying a fee when you didn't rewind the VHS tape. I'm assuming that somebody <laughs> would have said this is not a good business model. So my guess is uh, they could have identified this and maybe they could have um, – uh, maybe they could have uh, uh, looked at the at the future. I do know because I use this as an example in my in my instruction is that um, the the Netflix approached Blockbuster, if I'm not mistaken, twice and and offered to sell themselves for fifty million dollars. Netflix is a seventy seven billion dollar company right now. Now that was back in I believe uh, early two thousands. They said no and turned them down um, and inked a deal with Enron. 
My guess is that somebody would have said, you know, this is not, you know, we should we should think about this this uh, unprofitable company, Netflix. What are they doing? So it's not a pitch for Netflix, but it's a way of anticipating, you know, the, anticipating future. the future and adapting. And I think that points to risk management. How does the U.S. Coast Guard use strategic foresight to inform its decision making? We will ask Commander Eric Popeil, Program Manager of the U.S. Coast Guard's Evergreen Program, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Commander Eric Popeil, Program Manager of the U.S. Coast Guard's Evergreen Program. Also joining my conversation from the IBM Center for the Business of Government is John Kaminsky. So, Eric, uh, we're often confronted with wicked and complex challenges. Um, how would you characterize such challenges, and what are the key attributes that make them wicked or complex? So I think we deal with a lot of, of these challenges. Um, I think the... The critical uh, attributes of these is that your resources change. Um, you never have complete knowledge of the actual problem. Generally speaking, the people that are involved and the stakeholders hold some radically different worldviews when it comes to addressing these challenges. And I don't think you ever solve the problem definitively. So I, I think that looking at some of those problems, uh, for example, the uh, international drug trafficking for the Coast Guard is one is that it, it's tough to, to, to solve it. Or, or even get people on board with a sort of solution. Now, what I think you can do with various strategies, I think you can use scenario-based plan to do this, is to sort of mitigate um, some of these, some of the issues and some of the problems that are, that, that are around these. I know that the Coast Guard has been tossing the idea around of what happens if uh, the drug mission goes away. That's one of those things where, you know, maybe 20 years ago, we wouldn't have even looked at it as, a, as even an option. But as you look at the trend towards legalization of marijuana, um, and maybe there's a trend towards legalization of other drugs, um, a mission that has been the Coast Guard sort of bread and butter for a long time that we've probably had a, a significant impact on, we certainly haven't solved, potentially could go away. And I think that looking at some of those future scenarios would help the Coast Guard um, look at a wicked problem, but also go, hey, what happens if that problem sort of goes away? And then plan for, you know, it's not going to go away overnight. 
But if it goes away in the next 10 to 15 years, we got to be ready for that. And how, how are we going to adjust our service and our core mission set to, to adapt to that? Well, as an, that, that's a good segue to something that's actually happened, which is that the Coast Guard has d- adopted an, an Arctic strategy. What did Evergreen do to contribute to that? Right. So currently, I think that you'd have to go all the way back to the, the initial Evergreen, uh, maybe all the way back to 1998, and identifying, number one, the concept of maritime domain awareness. I think that's, that was critical. Um, if you fast forward a few years to 2009, one of the strategic needs that came out of Evergreen was a Coast Guard need to have a greater polar mission capacity. So I think while it's difficult to sit there and say Evergreen um, you know, said we should go to the Arctic and we should do X, Y, or Z in a sort of a prescriptive manner. I don't think we did, but I think what we did was identify some of these mission sets and some of these operating areas that we need to function. So I'd like to I think that we probably got some leadership and some Coast Guard thinking more about it as opposed to, um, you know, what, what we've been doing business as usual. We've been going to the Arctic and the Antarctic for a lot longer than Evergreen's been around. But I'd like to think that placing an emphasis on that domain and saying, hey, listen, this is something that we're going to have to be wrestling with and tackling with, especially in light of climate change, is something that Evergreen, I think, would I'd like to say would influence just a little bit. Um, and while, like I said, we didn't write the strategy, um, sort of guiding people in the right direction, I think, what we do best. So from uh, the Arctic to cybersecurity, which is a very important um, uh, thing to take seriously today, um, how uh, did Evergreen – uh, inform and shape uh, the Coast Guard's uh, cybersecurity strategy. So again, going back to where we uh, Evergreen understanding, you know, what domains we need to be operating in. I think that I could point to some strategic needs that said, "Hey, listen, this is a domain that's that's coming up." Uh, and to be fully honest, I think that we were probably a little late on that. Quite frankly, mm-hmm. um, like I said, I don't think foresight is not the is not the golden goose, and it's not the uh, the magic wand. Um, if you if I went back and looked uh, in preparation for this, you know, we, I think we identified cyber maybe uh, you know maybe eight eight years ago, eight nine years ago. That's great, but I think quite frankly, we're probably a little late. In all honesty. Now, what I would say is that, so identifying that is is good, but what we ended up doing with an Evergreen workshop was we looked at the cyber strategy we had currently written. We identified, we looked at the implementation team and what they were doing. We looked 10 years out into the future and said, hey, what do we think the cyber environment is going to look like? And what do we think the Coast Guard needs to do to be ready for it? And then what we did was we took those strategic needs and those key success factors and mapped them back to the, the current strategy that's already in place. Where there were commonalities, we said, hey, look, you're, you're right in alignment. We think that this strategy is actually working. Where there were some additional um, opportunities, uh, we, we communicated those to the, to the, uh, uh, the implementation teams. And then, you know, we, we published a report that said this is sort of what we need to, what we need to focus on. And what we're hoping is that when, we, when the, it comes time to refresh that cyber strategy, um, Evergreen will play a role in looking at plausible operating environments and helping to once again inform the direction of that, of that strategy. What about the, this year's efforts to refresh the Coast Guard strategic needs document, especially in the context of uh, this, the new administration's request to the agencies develop uh, reform plans and stuff, sir? Yeah, so what we're in the process of doing now is um, we are uh, looking at uh, recompeting a, a contract to sort of what I would like to call Big Evergreen, which is Coast Guard 
um, writ large sort of global scenarios. Uh, the last two years, we've done cyber and we've done Arctic, which are a little bit more topical. Um, I think that's that's key, and I think it's it's good to do that. But I would like to get back to sort of the overall uh, topic of Big Evergreen. And so what we're doing is we're doing a lot of market research right now, and we're um, we're taking a look at who can help us out and on the, on the contracting side, and we're also taking a look at you know what the what the current trends are in terms of you know we have a new administration, um, we have a lot of other things that are that are going on. So what we what we hope to do is to once again develop some uh, some scenarios. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We have some that are built, and we can probably work off of those and say, hey, how can we tweak these just a little bit? But we do want to incorporate some of the major events that have, that have happened and, and potentially could happen um, in the near future. So our goal is to, uh, in, a, in a four-year sort of planning cycle, is to develop some strategic needs and then hand these products, not to the to the commandant that's coming up that's going to relieve Admiral Zunkoff, but whoever's going to relieve that person and, and hand that to them in the, in the November you know, 2021 sort of time frame. And hopefully those products will help influence their strategic direction for the Coast Guard. Now, there is a broader network of um, individuals across the federal government that are doing strategic foresight. And other agencies are also doing strategic foresight planning and looking for drivers. Is, is there any like network that reaches across, uh, and we'll talk more about the Federal Foresight Community of Interest a little later, but is there some sort of sharing of these drivers and, and things? So I think it's it's on an informal basis there is. I think that, uh, and, and like I said, we, we'll talk a little bit more, but that, that network of, uh, of that community of interest is pretty well networked. And um, I know I tap them on many occasions to ask for their for their insights. A lot of the products that come out of that are certainly um, passed around to to the various other agencies. So there is a sharing that goes on among the, these foresight practitioners. I do think that foresight is sort of a uh, kind of a grassroots movement right now. Um, when I came to uh, Washington four years ago, I, I assumed that every agency in the federal government was thinking 20, 30 years out and planning big things. And I was... I was mistaken. I don't say that as a, as a slam on agencies or any of this sort of stuff, but I, I, thought, I just thought that people thought a lot more long-term. And the reason why I thought that is that for, for the most of us, all of us think long-term, right? We, we buy a house and we have a 30-year mortgage. We put money in a 401k expecting to retire 40 years from now. It seems like every person or a lot of people on the, uh, in this country have a long-term mentality. And then when we get sort of into our institutional or work environment, we all of a sudden go right to the present and go, how do I survive? So to me, I think it's it's a little bit of grassroots, and I but I do think that the community is growing. I think that there are more and more agencies and entities in the federal government that are employing uh, strategic foresight, um, and I have a myriad of examples of where I've been asked to you know help out to, to help help out programs or provide some assistance. I just got an invitation um, from a, a lady up at the Naval Undersea Warfare Center in Newport that wants to figure out who's who in the in the public sector sort of uh, foresight arena. Um, and sort of start bringing all of these people together. And I think that I'm not sure exactly what the group is going to do, but I looked at it. My email back to her was, this is a tremendous partnership opportunity. We've got these folks in D.C., and you're looking at folks up in Newport. What's the, what's the synergy there, and how can we bring this to the, to the attention of our, um, of our senior leaders? Yeah, we're going to talk more about that. Um, but I'd like to get back to the uh, evergreen process per se, and that is um, how are you helping – uh, the commandant and the folks running the Coast Guard uh, with force planning, the force planning construct. And so we're not we're we're involved in more of an ancillary role right okay. now. What we, what ended up happening uh, was the the we are 
forging ahead on a force planning contract. We've got some con- some contractors working with us and some folks in our office that are doing the lion's share of the work on that. What Evergreen's contribution at the beginning was was developing some plausible uh, futures and then some plausible events that we could look at um, testing a, a future force on. So the part of the force planning construct is scenarios. And what we were helpful in doing was developing and identifying sort of scenarios and what some plausible events were would be in the future. So that when a when a force is is um, uh, developed by the by the program, um, they'll be able to sort of test it against various operating environments and sort of identify various risks, where it works, where it doesn't, and that sort of stuff. So while we're um, we're not uh, intimately involved in that process. We're standing by to help. Um, and like I said, our, our office is, is sort of one of those things where um, at times it's we, we run our own programs, but there are certain times it's all hands on deck and everybody pitches in to help. Well, you know, you mentioned if a mission goes away yep. or if, in your response to the Wicked Challenge. Is the force construct or the force planning construct, is that related to, say, a mission changing its shape or maybe even being jettisoned, or is it not related at all? Um, I don't have an incredible amount of knowledge on that, so I don't want to comment too much. I, I, would, I think that they are, they, they may be looking at it, but for now, what they're looking at is predominantly the 11 statutory missions that the Coast Guard has. Um, but I think that um, ultimately a force planning construct um, will be robust enough to you know, take some, maybe some evergreen inputs and go, hey, listen, how would we have to adjust potentially if missions went away or if, if we added a mission? Um, it's not just taking a mission away, but it could be adding a mission as well. So this is a follow-on kind of to the design thinking response that you, we talked about earlier. But how does that process, the evergreen process currently constituted, how does it build consensus and teamwork? I think it brings a lot of folks together is the first thing. And I think what it does is it enables people to kind of step outside of their comfort zone and identify and and let their voice be heard and then sort of identify these things. I think the rigor behind it, um, when you present your findings to a group of senior leadership, number one, it's not a bunch of guys in a smoke-filled room (laughs) that said, this is what we think should happen. It's a, a, a bunch of very smart individuals and subject matter experts for that matter. I am not a subject matter expert on all things Coast Guard. That's not what. That's not my job description. Um, I think I'm a little bit more on, on in the aviation side of the house. But when it comes to boats or law enforcement, I'm not an expert. But I do know where to look. And so when we when we engage in these workshops, when we engage in coming up with these ideas, um, we're tapping that Coast Guard supercomputer and asking these people who are experts to do it. So when you present these things um, as a as a unified front. Uh, senior leadership can look at this and go, this was done in a rigorous, repeatable way, and they can present a unified front as well, too, if they want to go down a road. So you can build consensus with dialogue and discussion in a, in a workshop. You can present a unified front, and you can tell senior leadership, we have, we have done this, um, and, it's, and it's wor- the process itself is sound, and, and it, it's repeatable, and the recommendations are good. What is the mission of the Federal Foresight Community of Interest? We'll ask Commander Eric Popeil program manager of the U.S. Coast Guard's Evergreen Program, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. What is the U.S. Air Force's information dominance strategy? How is the Air Force changing the way it does IT? What is the U.S. Air Force doing to leverage advances of mobile technologies? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Bill Marion. Deputy Chief Information Dominance and Deputy Chief Information Officer, U.S. Air Force. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. 
The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Commander Eric Popeil, Program Manager of the U.S. Coast Guard's Evergreen Program. Also joining my conversation from the IBM Center for the Business of Government is John Kaminsky. Eric, how does uh, engaging in the strategic foresight scenario planning help avoid the trap of uh, finding the most likely future? Yeah, the uh, the most likely future, I think, is the is the one that we do need to avoid because it's the one where we have an unlimited budget, unlimited authorities, and nothing goes wrong. I think that that human beings are, generally speaking, a lot of them are optimists. And so, if you had your way about what's the most likely future going to be, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it good for my organization because I also have this uh, this inherent will to survive, and I want to, I want to keep my job. Now, that may not necessarily be the most likely future, but it's going to be your most likely future. So. What I think that using scenarios, um, while we're not trying to craft any sort of dystopian sort of uh, end of the world scenarios, we're trying to push pe- the envelope and try and get people out of their comfort zone and uh, and help them to to identify with a world that maybe, you know, they don't have unlimited budget authority or they, you know, things are bad or the federal government uh, is, is not as powerful as it once was. Different ideas and different concepts. Um, because ultimately, it is about the, the you know your organization thriving in a different environment, and you have to be ready for it. I was over in uh, in China um, helping out the uh, uh, Chinese Maritime Safety Administration, and uh, and one of the they, they after I ran a I ran a, a quick workshop, um, all sanctioned by the State Department. Uh, <laughs> I ran a quick workshop with them uh, over two days, and they uh, one of them came up and said. You know, it's it's interesting. You know, we talk about scenarios where where the budget is going down and where there's not a whole lot of money, and everybody's actually kind of comfortable playing in that because it's sort of the reality that we're living in. Um, and he said, you know, I really think that we need to look at an environment or a scenario where, my gosh, we do have some budget authority, and we actually have to spend money wisely. And he said, it's not about just throwing money or or spending it willy nilly. He goes, but it's about being intelligent and smart with the resources that we're given. At some point in time, when we do have a, a, a wide variety of resources and, and a lot more of them, we actually may have to make some some key strategic decisions, and we need to buy and and, and apply those resources the right way. So I think that. Um, using scenarios, it forces your organizations to kind of look at those at, at different scenarios. It forces you to sort of get out of your comfort zone of what do you really think is going to happen, be it positive or negative, and live in a different world that potentially it may happen. So, you know, John mentioned earlier uh, the federal foresight community of interest, and I'd like to dig a little deeper. Besides telling us what its mission is, what prompted its creation? And, and and I don't know if you want to share any more about how you guys sh- uh, share your experiences. Sure. So the the Federal Foresight Community of Interest was uh, the the brainchild of uh, Mr. James Christian Blockwood, who's uh, who's currently over at GAO. And I think what his vision was was to bring all of the sort of disparate foresight practitioners together in a way that they could share their best practices, they could they could uh, network, and they could sort of 
um, use the the collective power to to better the federal government. Uh, I have the I have the privilege of leading that with Joe Moore, who's over at uh, at the VA. We meet on a quarterly basis, and we we do our best to get great speakers, have some good presentations on what people are actually doing in terms of foresight, and also sort of to network and sort of figure out, hey, you know, yeah, you you got this project going on, but what, what's coming what's coming down the pike? I, I've always been a said that foresight is one of those things that sort of ebbs and flows. Um, sometimes you've got senior leadership that is just on board with it and they are they are 100% behind it and they are going to fund your office and they're going to give you all the resources you need. And sometimes there are, there are times when it's just not in vogue for whatever reason. There's too many fires to put out and you know what? Big thinking is just not what we need right now. So I think that it's one of those places where people can come together and realize that there are other people doing this inside the federal government. It is a grassroots effort. It's only been around for about three years. But I think it's, like I said, I think it's growing. We've been able to out-network uh, and outreach to 30-plus agencies. And every time I, uh, you know, I open up my email, every so often something will come across my account and it'll be another, somebody else going, hey, how, how do we do this? What's, what's doing, what are we doing this? I think it's also been a place where people have uh, looked at different methodologies that are being used and started to apply them across their agency. I know the VA is doing this. Obviously, Coast Guard is doing this. Um, Defense Threat Reduction Agency is doing this. FEMA has used the Coast Guard scenarios, and they continue to use them. And uh, and I believe and NOAA is looking at some stuff as well. So there are a variety of different uh, organizations that, that are that are using this stuff and 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 really trying to apply it and, and make their organizations better. Um, I think our time is, is coming. Um, we're not quite there yet. I think we still need to build a little bit. Um, but, but doing stuff like this and getting the word out and saying, hey, listen, there are people out there who are looking long range and, and trying to make sure that their organizations and, and um, the federal government writ large is, you know, survives um, into, the, into the future. And not just survives, but really thrives and, and does, a, a, does a, a good job for the country and for the taxpayers. Well, this whole concept of foresight goes beyond the federal government, and there's the World Future Society and group. But within the World Future Society and these others, there's a sort of an international network. There's the Public Sector Foresight Network. Could you talk a little bit about uh, how that's uh, connected to what you're doing? Sure. So, uh, Clem Beasold and, uh, and Nancy Donovan uh, run uh, the, the Public Sector Foresight Network. Um, and it is sort of, I would say, the international counterpart to the uh, federal foresight community of interest. I think it's made up of a group of uh, organizations and uh, governments and, and other people that engage in the practice of foresight. There are several governments out there, uh, the Singapore being the most notable one that really has institutionalized foresight. And when I say institutionalized, I don't mean they built a big building and filled it with a bunch of foresight guys and said, now we do, we do futures. They, they really um, look at it in a way to inform their, their policy and they, they look for the, the best thing possible. So I take a lot – I get a lot of resources from them. Um, and I think that that sort of uh, community around the globe um, linked in with, with our um, uh, federal foresight community of interest is, is key. Um, learning some best practices from, from governments and organizations that have done this stuff and how can we best apply them to large organizations. I, I will admit the, uh, the, the government of Singapore is uh, roughly 80,000 people, which is roughly the size of the Coast Guard if you take active duty, reservists, and auxiliarists. So we're talking about an organization that is significantly smaller than the federal government, but there are still lessons to be learned from that network and from those people. And so we typically get together once a year. Um, used to be at the World Future Society Conference. 
And we would once again share some best practices, um, share some anecdotes about, you know, what's going on and listen to what other folks are doing out there and then try and take that back and apply it. Because ultimately, sitting around and listening to someone talk about what they're doing is great, but actually taking the lessons learned and applying it back to your organization is really the crucial part of it. So what does the future hold for the use of strategic foresight in the federal government? All right. So I'm, I'm a huge optimist in this. As you can probably tell, I'm pretty passionate about this. My, uh, I really think that that, like I said, we're sort of a grassroots organization, and I think that it's that the the concept and the idea is taking off. I think that maybe people had a sort of like, what is this thing? What are they doing? Why are they, you know, playing in science fiction? This is kind of weird. But I think once they some they kind of come to understand the rigor behind it and the fact that we're not, you know, we're not um, drafting space opera. We're actually playing in sort of hard science fiction that you can actually t- uh, tie to sort of a trend, sort of a driver, and and look at some of the the stuff that's coming down the pike. Um, I think I'm optimistic that it's going to that's going to take root and that there's more people coming down that are, that are going to more organizations are going to start applying this. Um, if you look at some of the the stuff that that was considered science fiction, you know, back in the uh, 80s and 90s, you look at Star Trek. Some of that stuff is is here. It's it's already here, um, and it may not be in the exact form that Gene Roddenberry perceived it. But if you look at additive manufacturing and you look at the, you know, the, the cell phone revolution and you look at the medical revolution and some of these other things and some of this technology that's come online, um, I, I, I would argue that we are – there are some, some significant advances that have happened that used to be something of Hollywood and now we're actually, we're actually living in this. So I wouldn't be surprised if people start identifying these sort of looking at the, at the history and going – wow, this, thing, this stuff is actually coming quicker and we need to be sort of identifying this. Um, looking at things like uh, autonomous vehicles, looking at robotics, um, these are things that we're going to have to struggle with. And, and we should be struggling with them now when they're not – when, when they're just starting to come out rather than getting sort of hit in the face with it when a company says, listen, I've got this thing and I want to put autonomous trucks on the road and I'm going to do it. What does the federal government do about that? Well, let's prepare for it now and let's use some of these methodologies that can sort of look at that um, and and identify it. Um, A quick example of that is I think about five years ago, um, I want to say it was 7-Eleven or or one of these uh, places was delivering um, beer via drones to, to ice fishermen on the Great Lakes. And and they were, you know, you order your stuff and out comes your beer. Uh, what's interesting about that is that instead of the FA basically shut them down and said, you're not doing this anymore. Um, that was five years ago. Now you've got Amazon looking at this and you've got other places that are going, I want to deliver this stuff with drones. Well, the, the response of the government and of agencies cannot be shut it down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, over in, uh, I, I want to say it's Norway, they're, they're experimenting with uh, autonomous shipping. They're experimenting with unmanned vessels. Um, when that vessel shows up in New York Harbor, the response of the federal government cannot be, it's not coming in. We have got to be prepared for this. So as, it's, as, as we're seeing these trends, um, I think it's the responsibility of the, of the agencies to sort of look at them and go and, and communicate to, the, to the, the leaders and say, we have got to be ready for this. It may just be policy. It may not be a huge resource lift. We've got to understand what's coming down the pike so that we're ready for it. So when it does come down, it won't be perfect. It won't be a perfect solution. But it'll be a whole lot better just waiting for it to happen to us, which I don't think is a is a good solution at all. So, Eric, what advice would you give someone who is thinking perhaps about a career in public service, and and maybe a young person who may be interested in the Coast Guard? Yeah, so uh, I I would say go for it. Uh, I've I've done almost twenty years in the Coast Guard, and I don't think I've regretted a day in my life. Uh, the Coast Guard has been a fant- fantastic organization for me. Uh, it has it has always uh, uh, provided for me. 
Um, the, the people that I've got to work with have been phenomenal. Um, the, yes, the organization has its warts, don't they all? But in terms of a, of a place to work and a place to thrive and a place to grow and have a career, the Coast Guard is, is phenomenal. I've gotten to do some stuff I never thought I'd get to do. Um, I've got to see places I, would, I never thought I'd get to see and, and do it while wearing the uniform and serving my country. So to me, that's a, it's been an honor to serve and it's been a, it's been a great time. Um, in terms of civil servants, you know, I think that the federal government gets a bad rap. I think that, um, that you know, people call it bloated and they call it uh, inefficient and all sorts of other stuff. And I think there are some elements to that. But in all honesty, uh, the more time I spend in D.C., the more and the more I interact with civil servants, the more I realize that the people that are working in your federal government are dedicated professionals who, who do want to serve the American people. And so I think a career in civil service, if you're genuinely thinking about serving your country, the uniform is one way, but civil service is another way. And like I said, that it's, it, there are, it's a group of folks that are, that are committed to, to doing right by the taxpayers. Um, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this out there because I think it's a great story is that uh, my, my – prede- uh, not my predecessor, but the, the, one of the um, folks who worked for me, Molly Waters, who is now the commanding officer of a boat out in, uh, in Port Huron, Michigan – um, both of us got letters from the IRS at various times saying you, you owe us thousands of dollars. And the reason was, was because we'd made a mistake on our taxes. I didn't go to an accountant and I did it on TurboTax and I, 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 logged, I logged a sale and did not log another sale or I logged a sale, did not log a purchase that would have canceled each other out. And the IRS, because everything's reported to them, caught me. And so I got a letter in the mail and Molly got the very similar letter because she did virtually the same thing that I did that said, you owe us all this money. Now, I handled it one way. Molly handled it a different way. I called up the IRS and I said, what is going on? And I spoke with somebody in the IRS and they were incredibly helpful. They said, listen, Eric, uh, here's what you do. Here's the form. You go to the website, boom, 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 fill this out, send it in, and and, and we'll, we'll take care of it. Uh, three, four months later, I get a thing saying, you know, you owe us $200 in taxes and, and fees and penalties and stuff. But it wasn't 14000 okay? <laughs> so... Molly decided she was going to freaked out and said, I'm going to liquidate everything and wrote him a check for 14 grand. And I said, when I found out, I said, Molly, what did, you, what did you do? I said, let me tell you about my story. So we did. And so what Molly did, she called up her ass and over the course of about six months, because it was in the middle of tax season, um, we spoke with a, with a few people at the IRS. Bottom line was they were incredibly helpful. They, they wanted to get to the root of the problem. And by the way, they solved it. And then they sent Molly a check for $14,000 or whatever she, she had paid. Plus, because we borrowed your money for six months, here's some interest. So my point is, <laughs> my point is, is that as people like to throw stones at the federal government and they like to, you know, chuck, uh, make these uh, cast dispersions on it, I, I think that you have to look at the people that are working on it and not the institution itself. And if you actually interact with this organization, you'll find that the vast majority of the people that you come in contact with are dedicated, hardworking individuals that do want to serve the American taxpayer. So if you're looking for a job in civil service, I'd say go. That's a great uh, great answer, actually. So, uh, Eric, um, thanks for joining us today. But more importantly, John and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate you having me. Um, I, I, I I've never done this before, but I really do uh, have enjoyed the format and enjoyed answering your questions. And like I said, I hope that this helps to, you know, in some way promote some, some foresight in the federal government, at least get the word out. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Commander Eric Popeil, Program Manager of the U.S. Coast Guard's 
Evergreen Program. My co-host has been John Kaminsky, Senior Fellow of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What is the U.S. Air Force's information dominance strategy? How is the Air Force changing the way it does IT? What is the U.S. Air Force doing to leverage advances of mobile technologies? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Bill Marion, Deputy Chief Information Dominance and Deputy Chief Information Officer, U.S. Air Force. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM.